For the first time ever, the two-man show. You guys excited? That's right. I suppose it is, actually, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. If we could do two hours with a guest, we could do 50 minutes with you two, right? Well, let's let's see. Let's see what happens. <laughs> okay, this so episode will be eight hours long. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, have fun. Go to it. Oh, you're going to lay me out pretty, eh? That's the thanks I get for freeing an innocent girl, who, although she is hiding in the closet at the moment, has promised to become the mother of her children. Hello and welcome to the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. I'm Matthew Conium, and that person leering over your shoulder is Noah Diamond. Never heard of him. Hello, Noah. Hi, Matthew. <laughs> Uh, this is episode 55, Did You Ever Sit and Ponder As You Walk Along the Strand? Now, before we get on to exactly what this episode is all about, there may be a few of you out there who don't even understand what the title means. So before we even uh, crack into the main theme, uh, Noah, what, 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 was I, what was I quoting there? Oh, well, you're quoting the poem from Animal Crackers which most fans know from the Evening with Groucho record. This was a poem that Groucho wrote and recited during the stage production of Animal Crackers in order to cover some time for a scene change. And uh, if you'd like to hear it, I'd be, happy to, I'd be happy to pass it along. Yes, please. Well, it goes a little something like this. Did you ever sit and ponder as you walk along the strand that life's a bitter battle at the best? And if you only knew it and could lend a helping hand, then every man could meet the final test. The world is but a stage, my friend, and life is but a game, and how you play is all that matters in the end. For whether a man is right or wrong, a woman gets the blame, and your mother is your dog's best friend. Then up came mighty Casey and strode up to the bat, and Sheridan was fifty miles away. For it takes a heap of lovin' to make a home like that, on the road to where the fine fishes play. The poem in fine style sort of just peters out at the end. Groucho <laughs> on the record describes a bit of business with a chair, and he lets us know that he ended it with a quote from this popular song of 1928. So be a real life Pagliacci and laugh, clown, laugh. <laughs> so that was before the interval in Animal Crackers. You know, I'm not sure exactly where in the show it happened. It was at some point... Probably not before that, because they needed a... Cover a scene change or something. The curtain closed and something happened. Um, well, they built in the next set behind the curtain, and they just needed something in one to, mm. to cover that up. And um, Groucho's story was that uh, this poem uh, did very well on Broadway. It got big laughs from the audience. But um, out on the road, they thought I was serious. <laughs> uh, I, this is one of those stories about people outside New York being woefully unsophisticated that I think we take with a grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> but he wrote it himself. That's that's interesting because you know there's not not a lot in their official canon that he that he uh, puts his name to. And it's pretty good, isn't it? It's good good stuff. Yes, it has some good stuff in it. It's packed with uh, references to it. It um, it's a good basis for an argument of Groucho as a sort of remix artist or a sampling mm. artist. Yeah, I mean, you certainly you could argue that it's derivative of of uh, a lot of his other uh, you know favorite writers of that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah, that's that gets that gets a thumbs up from me. So the reason why I chose that as the title is because it seems to me that Marx fans 
do an awful lot of of sitting and pondering. Um, is it me, or are we a, a more speculative bunch than the fans of other teams? We we seem to revel in in what ifs, if onlys, and and nearly could have beens. Maybe it's just a small number of the films, just thirteen after all, of which even the most devoted fan would probably only honestly single out eight at most as as top draw. For many devotees, the number's even lower, six, five, even four. This is simply not a problem for fans of Chaplin or Keaton or Laurel and Hardy. A Laurel and Hardy podcast, after all, would be over a hundred episodes old before they'd even run out of deep dives. Of course, it helps that there's a whole string of very real nearly wases for us to agonise over. The independent film they almost made when they walked out of Paramount in the early stages of Duck Soup, the Calmer and Ruby Go West, the planned adaptation of Room Service in which they were to have abandoned their usual characters and Harper was to have spoken, the other RKO projects, including an adaptation of The Three Musketeers, the biopic with Gummo making an appearance, A Day at the UN, and many more. What we're going to be doing in this episode, then, is to entertain some of our most frequent daydreams, things that we'd not merely wish they'd done, but which they feasibly just might have done, but didn't. The lost roads never taken or turned off too rashly, the ideas that sadly never popped into the right heads at the right time, the alternatives that passed unnoticed in the side mirror of their forward trajectory. So, Noah, first off, am I right? Do do Marx fans... worry about the might have beens more than say your average harold lloyd or bob hope fan i think that's probably true it's hard for me to say because uh i'm deep inside the world of obsessive marx fans in a way that i'm not quite for other comedians including other comedians of which of whom i'm a big fan but i think you're right and i also think you're right about the reason for it just the scarcity of marx brothers gold Okay, let's start off with the one that I I think comes up most often, which is other directors. Um, Different directors, better directors, directors from one project swap with the directors of others. Would it have made a positive difference, a negative difference, or no real difference at all? We need to start, I think, by by noting that there is a degree of contradiction in, in the standard take on this question. On the one hand... We often hear that, that all that is required of a Marx director is the basic efficiency to best present the script and the performances and that anything else would be obtrusive at best and possibly counterproductive. Um, and purely coincidentally, uh, this week I was reading the book Our Films, Their Films by the, the uh, great Bengali director uh, Shotajit Rai. And um, he's in a chapter called Hollywood Then and Now. He starts off talking about uh, Chaplin and Keaton Uh, And then he says, the purely visual comedy died with the last silent films of Chaplin. The purely verbal ones have no validity as films. So we're left with the ones that sought to combine the two. These, to be really good, had to fulfil three main conditions. They had to be well written, they had to be well directed, and they had to be well acted. Fortunately, Hollywood had talented people working in all three capacities. Among the directors, Frank Capra, Leo McCary, George Stevens, Preston Sturges and Billy Wilder have all proved their mettle in comedies. If they had to share their contribution with some very efficient writers and some excellent casts of performers, they were still dominating enough to have left their hallmarks on their films. Fair enough. But he then goes on to say this. I hope I may be pardoned for forgetting the names of the gentlemen who directed the Marx Brothers. In fact, I'm inclined to doubt if there were any. 
If a director's function is to marshal the forces and impose order and sanity on the proceedings, then obviously he has no business to be within a mile of the Marxes. The relationship of art to inspired nonsense has never been very clearly defined. In any case, it would seem a little irrelevant to talk of art in connection with, say, a night at the opera. But I will say this, that if I were given the choice of one and only one film to take with me to that desert island, I would go for a Marx film without a moment's hesitation. So there he's very much articulating that, that position that, you know, as, as long as the camera's pointing in the right direction, uh, you, you've got everything you need. On the other hand, we're often told that Duck Soup is their best film because it's the only time they were paired with a really good director in Leo McCary. So what, what gives? There's there's a lot here. I, I think one one fact that seems inarguable to me is that if Norman MacLeod had directed Duck Soup, it would be different, but it would still be great. Wouldn't it be at least comparable in quality to Monkey Business and Horse Feathers? I wonder if during their really great period, whatever we want to call it on film 1929 to maybe 1937, it seems like maybe the producer is really the important creative leader of those films. Um, Herman Mankiewicz, with his kind of laissez-faire approach to producing might have made the most important decision in their early film career, you know, to to allow those films to be what they were. Um, and if a more conventional studio producer than Mankiewicz had been overseeing Monkey Business, Horse Feathers, and Duck Soup, we might have had all the later MGM problems much sooner. Um, and then at MGM, under Thalberg's wing, they managed to do at least one great film um, and then a, a, a reasonably good follow-up to it. Um, so I wonder, I think when we talk about the what ifs with directors like Billy Wilder, or if they had had a chance to work with Sturges or Lubitsch, other great comic directors at the time, it, it seems a little more appropriate to speculate about that for their later years, um, the, the period in which Wilder was going to make the UN film, because it's not as much that the Marx Brothers needed a great director as by that time, they needed someone who was determined to make a distinctive, high-quality film. We kind of know that after the great period of the Marx Brothers on film, A Night in Casablanca is about as good as it gets, you know. If they take it upon themselves to marshal writers and other artists to make a film happen, what you get is a kind of a good version of what Thalberg might have had them do. And these directors with vision, I don't think they would have necessarily turned out perfect Marx Brothers movies, but, you know, they might have found ways to use them that were interesting rather than continuing to try to approximate earlier successes. Yeah, I mean, my caveat, um, my, my dick caveat with, um, with, <laughs> with Wilder, uh, um, I think is, is the same as with, with, with Lubitsch, who was once uh, tentatively mooted to, to be making a film with them to, to be called Ooh La La, which is that they were um, autocrats, weren't they? I mean, Wilder hated improvisation on his sets. Lubitsch, uh, like Chaplin, literally acted out the roles for the actors and said, do it like this. Um, there's nothing less likely to produce a great Marx Brothers movie. It's also interesting what you said about swapping them around. Let's say you took a director-proof film, you know, something like Horse Feathers, and gave that to 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 Bazell or David Miller, uh, and then freed up McLeod to 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 make you know Go West or Love Happy. We're still going to end up with basically the same film, aren't we? I mean, it, it is it is all about the written material, really. Yeah, I I think so. 
if, if Bazell had directed a, a, one of the Paramount films under the supervision of Herman Mankiewicz, you know, we, we might have wound up, yeah, with roughly what we did get. Um, I, I, I think that's arguable, or, or, you know, at least viably arguable. It also seems that in the later years, when there was a much greater sense of unhappiness with the films, on, and we know very much on Groucho's part especially, um, you know, the director often seemed to become a sort of easy scapegoat for Groucho's frustration and Groucho's mounting discontent with the act. Uh, you know, don't you think like some of the uh, feelings we know he had about Sam Wood um, were maybe based more on just the general Marxian rejection of authority? Um, and that also happened at the same time as this tremendous amount of love and respect for the man who was producing those films. And I think there's also the, the, the other mistake to be wary of is, is that when people say Leo McCary was, was the only time they were given a, a great director, what, what they're actually saying is, is that they're not saying or shouldn't be saying that the, the other Marx directors were bad directors or, or were nobodies um, because they simply weren't. I mean, actually, they had, a, they had a pretty good run of directors, Sam Wood and Archie Mayo, and, and were, were big studio directors with big studio hits. Norman McLeod was an experienced comedy director. Ed Bazell had a track record in comedy. Chuck Reisner worked with Chaplin and Keaton. Uh, William Siter made what is generally considered to be Laurel and Hardy's best ever feature film. Uh, Robert Florey is a name that, that cineasts will, will need no help with. I think actually the only Marx director whose name instantly evokes the Marxes alone these days is, is Victor, Victor Herman. Um, they did have a lot of varied directorial input. Um, but I think the only two who it can really be said imprinted their own tastes and style onto the material uh, McCary usually uh, positively said to be positively and Bazell said to be kind of negatively um, so so what what people are really saying is that that they find McCary to have been an ideally matched director and that opens up a whole other question doesn't it about about what an ideally matched director would be if we're rejecting the, the you know Shachit Ray uh, take that that uh, you basically just need film in the camera I think and I, I believe you do too that Norman MacLeod was the ideal Marx Brothers director and I think what we're saying there is that they needed a director who was more a traffic cop than an artist. Um, I mean, McCary, you can tell McCary directed Duck Soup. He, he left his mark on it. That doesn't seem to be true elsewhere. But, you know, there's a whole catalog of Leo McCary films and a Leo McCary legend that we can overlay on our understanding of Duck Soup. Um, you know, in, in a way, McCloud's um, lack of a style is what made him so right for them. Um, I, it, I don't know. I find myself returning to the idea that the visionary work um, done on these films, other than that done by the writers and the Marx Brothers themselves, it seems to have been more the producer's domain. Um, it's also the age of the producer. I mean, the, the Marx Brothers' career in film is pretty much over at the time that directors um, massively begin to assert their creative ownership of movies. Um, th that's why... The Billy Wilder idea—it's—it's—it's it's, it's hard to let go of the possibility that that might have been really interesting. I don't think it would have been like horse feathers, um, but you know, Scott Alexander uh, posted in the Marx Brothers Council Group recently uh, an article from November of 1960. Um, we'll we'll link to it on the website. That's uh, an interview with Billy Wilder talking about the Marx Brothers UN film that at the time of this interview he very much seems to have intended to make. 
And there does seem to be some concession from Wilder in that interview that he does kind of get the Marx Brothers and he gets that this isn't going to be like other Billy Wilder movies. And I wonder if he would have found um, room to ex- to uh, make exceptions to his, his uh, strictures about improvisation and things like that because he's working with the Marx Brothers, you know. In that interview, Wilder says, we will keep the same Marx Brothers technique of playing against a very serious background. We'll try to keep it all, the dignity of the locale, the procedure, the enormity of the problem, with Groucho Harpo Chico in the middle of it. He also mentions that he and IAL Diamond, no relation, um, (laughs) estimated that they needed 3,000 jokes for the Marx Brothers UN screenplay. Which got me wondering, how many jokes are there? How many jokes are there in Animal Crackers? That is the the most sort of encouraging thing I've I've come across about about that movie, and it does it does give me positive pause. Um, I mean, obviously, it's not going to be you know the, like the, the 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 apocryphal stories of of the uh, you know having to put them in a cage. You know, that obviously that wasn't going to be that wasn't going to be his problem at this point, was it? It wasn't really going to be stopping them going. It's more likely they would need extra goosing by that time yeah get them out of the case yes (laughs) i mean i think it's interesting to 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 speculate isn't it about how they would have responded to that to that assignment because obviously all three of them would have been flattered that such such an important name you know wanted them uh even groucho i think would would have been sufficiently flattered to to have pulled his finger out um, but Chico and Harpo, I mean, it seems to have been Harpo more than than Groucho, doesn't it? Who who kind of squelched it because he just he just didn't feel up to it at that stage. Um, and Chico, although he would have would have felt up to it, probably wasn't up to it. Um, so I, you know, I, I I think either we would have had a film with a lot of doubling, you know, with a lot of with a lot of long shots of of doubles. Um, or we would have had a film that I don't know how it would have fitted together. Really, certainly heavily Groucho centric. Yeah, I think that's right. Groucho would have appealed to Wilder a lot and would have fit nicely with the kind of satirical mood of a, of a Wilder and Diamond script, or at least more naturally than his brothers, uh, which makes this somewhat exceptional, right? It seems to me the other. Uh, more artistic directors who might have been interested in the Marx Brothers were probably more drawn to Harpo. Um, you know, I mean, one wonders, as long as we're speculating, uh, you know, uh, what if Chaplin had gotten his hands on Harpo at some point? Think of the way Chaplin paired himself with Buster Keaton and Limelight so interestingly. What if there had been an aging comedian's picture that Chaplin um, employed a Marx Brother or two on? Um, you could go even further with that. What if uh, what if Hitchcock had gotten interested in them? Could we have had Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and Psycho? <laughs> um, or Frank Capra, you know, directors uh, who, who did have distinctive styles and were known for the flavor and tone and even the kind of messaging in their work. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that these ideas are very much about the Marx Brothers in a different world. Um you know, what if the Marx Brothers had uh, invaded the, um, the 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 beautiful uh, fabulistic world of a Frank Capra film? Um, I think of Mark Twain's idea that he never actually realized, but in his notebooks, Mark Twain wrote about this project he wanted to write that he referred to as a burlesque version of Hamlet. And the idea was that it would be 
Hamlet itself, Shakespeare's text edited down, I would imagine, with an additional character added who would be a kind of contemporary American wise guy who would just wander through the action of Hamlet and comment on it and make trouble and interact with the the actual characters. Um, you know, something like that might have been an interesting way to use the Marx Brothers. It's not how they were used, and it wouldn't, it probably wouldn't showcase them at their animal crackers best. Um, but, you know, it, it, in a conventional film, the kind of thing we would expect from Capra or Hitchcock or any director with a distinctive body of work, um, if they had just sort of opened the door uh, halfway through Act One and allowed the Marx Brothers in, um, we might have wound up with some interesting entertainment. Hitchcock might have made something out of uh, Silent Panic, I guess. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's also interesting to wonder, you know, if the Marx Brothers as a team had survived just a little longer into the era when people directing films would have been possibly big Marx Brothers fans from childhood, we know that uh, Woody Allen wanted to cast Groucho in the part that Peter Sellers wound up playing in What's New Pussycat. So presumably, if Woody Allen had directed What's New Pussycat, Groucho might very well have played mm. that part, and he probably would have would have been happy to accept an offer from Allen. Um you know, what if all the all the Marx Brothers, what if Harpo and Chico had been available? Might Harpo have done the Marcel Marceau part in Mel Brooks' silent movie? Um, mm-hmm. or, or some other, you know, um, Harry Ritz also has a big cameo in silent movie. Um, um, it, maybe there would have been uh, uh, room for Marx Brothers there. Um, or in the recently sequelized History of the World Part One. Brooks finds places to put nobody quite as classic as the Marx Brothers, but Spike Milligan pops up in that movie. Um, Shecky Green and Henny Youngman are in it. Um, it, In a way, it's too bad the Marx Brothers didn't uh, last a little longer into the era when they were being so celebrated by a new generation of comic filmmakers. And, and you know, we tend to think that these earlier ideas are kind of pipe dreams. But there is actually one one film which which I think provides a kind of a a hint of what might have been, which is depending on which version you're watching, is called either Mad Wednesday or The Sin of Harold Diddlebock, which is um, a Preston Sturges film with Harold Lloyd in it, made in 1949, I think, so somewhere towards the end of the 40s, long after Lloyd had 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 dropped out of movies. Uh, Sturges brought him back to make a kind of halfway house between a Sturges movie and a Lloyd movie. It does pay a very explicit homage to Lloyd in that it's a sequel to The Freshman, one of his big silent hits, and it begins with the end of The Freshman and then segues into the new material. But but it is a you know a, a very um, typical dialogue led uh, loads of supporting characters Sturges type movie. So so you know th- these things weren't out of the question at the time. I mean it it could have happened. Uh, it would have been interesting if the Marx Brothers had wound up in films that weren't Marx Brothers films, um, the way uh, W. C. Fields appears in uh, Alice in Wonderland at Paramount, you know. Um, Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, sort of fantasy films uh, often seem to have, um, make natural homes for comedians. Um, there's there's really no Marx Brothers film like that. They don't have a Babes in Toyland, you know. Um, a, a film that is uh, less a film of theirs and more them participating in a kind of classic 
conventional idea for a film. The near miss of The Three Musketeers, obviously, is, is the closest thing to it, I guess, yeah. Right. Which was, uh, you know, something that, that was being supposedly being lined up for them at RKO before they, they decided that RKO wasn't the best, the best home for them after all. I've imagined them in The Wizard of Oz. It's a little hard to make that work. It, it seems natural because you've got an ingenue and three comedic characters. Uh, but uh, it does, they, their personalities don't map very neatly onto the lion, the scarecrow, and the tin man, do they? It's easier to imagine Groucho as Professor Marvel, maybe. As far as other directors go, I mean, in their early days at Paramount, it's certainly true, I think, that there was a large roster of directorial talent at Paramount that you could imagine making lovely, frothy films with them. Um, People like Mitchell Leeson or um, Dorothy Arzner or a a, a director whose work I enjoy called Frank Tuttle, whose name was briefly attached to monkey business. And they, they would have brought a freshness, perhaps, to the films. But I can't see them tearing them up and starting again, really, in the way that, that McCary did, at least some of the time in, in Duck Soup. So again, coming right back to the, the point I made at the start, I think what we're really pining for here is just more movies, isn't it? More, yeah. So if not directors, then what about stars? When um, the big store begins and we, and we see them sharing the above-the-title billing with, with Tony Martin, the Marx Brothers and Tony Martin in. Uh, I think we, we tend to resent the impudence, but uh, maybe that's only because uh, it's, it's a bit late in the day to start doing that. I mean, there's, there's no reason really why they, they couldn't have mingled with, with other stars at, at Paramount, you know, with, with Chevalier even or Clara Bow or, or, or Jack Oakey. Um, how, how do you feel in the general about, about them being paired with, with name performers? It is, in, in one sense, it's a little hard to imagine just because it didn't really happen very much. Um, and then the other thing is that from the movies they made, we sort of know what kind of performers the Marx Brothers are well teamed with, you know. They interact very well with um, heavies, um, very proper or dignified characters, um, characters uh, with great authority, um, and also with what I think of as Runyon-esque characters, you know, like the gangsters in Monkey Business or the um, Thelma Todd and Esther Muir kind of uh, characters, the femme fatale characters. It's hard to imagine them teamed with other comedians, certainly, um, because the Marx Brothers already are such a challenge to writers having to provide for these three very distinctive, very different comedians. Um, and, and I think that is probably true of other stars who aren't comedians. Uh, It's already such a project to accommodate these three personalities. Um, You know, imagine if you also had to figure out something for another great star, another great personality to do in the same movie. Um, You know, uh, just thinking of names of people who were who were actors, popular actors of their time. I think the people I love, you know, character actors who appeal to me, uh, oh, wouldn't it have been interesting if the Marx Brothers had been in a film with uh, with S.Z. Sakal or Edward Everett Horton? But quickly, I can't really figure out how that would have worked or why that would have been great. It seems the best uh, example that we have, the best thing we can compare it to, is the way they are with Edgar Kennedy and Duck Soup, you know, uh, a, com- a comic player uh, 
who somewhat awkwardly finds something to do in their world. And that in itself, I think, would, would be very, very hard to imagine if it didn't exist. If, if, if I now said, well, how about, how about Edgar Kennedy? He could, he could, he could spar off Chico and Hop. You know, the, we, we would tend to think, mm, maybe, but... No, not quite right. Yeah, uh, but, but, you know, we have it. And, and I know uh, it's not a big favourite scene of mine, but for many people, and, and, and quite rightly too, it is, a, it is one of their, you know most joyous scenes of all so a, a lot of it i think is is unfamiliarity isn't it more than uh you know the the impossibility of the idea uh, i think I, i've said before on here that the most tempting option for me um is is helen kane uh who was at paramount when they were mm. starting out they'd worked together in the past and she might have given their films something that perhaps some modern audiences might feel they somewhat lack, which is a strong female uh, comedic element. Women in the Marx films tend to conform to, to three basic archetypes, the ingenue, the siren, or the gorgon. And the notion of them working with someone like Kane maybe makes us wonder if there was room to accommodate something more comedically meaningful for 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 a female performer Lillian Roth in Crackers certainly hints at it from within her straight jacket of narrative functionality um actually do we know you I suspect would be the best person to ask know exactly what what Helen Kane's um interaction function with them on stage was well she had the ingenue role in on the mezzanine slash on the balcony um, in its, uh, I believe, in its American engagements only. She didn't go with them to to Britain. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what the details of of that character's role were, but it seems to be uh, roughly the, the the pretty girl part in a Marx Brothers piece, more comparable to Thelma Todd than to Margaret Dumont. Um, Helen Kane herself, of course, was such a distinctive and funny performer and had a, an unforgettable voice and um, her own brand of charisma. Uh, and so it, it would it would have given them a performer to work with who had, you know, a comparably over the top personality to theirs. At least that's how I think of Helen Kane. I, maybe what she was doing on stage with them at the time was more conventional in the same way that Lucille Ball doesn't quite seem like Lucille Ball in room service. But Lucille Ball looks looks like a human being, you know, whereas Helen Kane, yeah, Helen Kane looks right. like a cartoon character. And there's, there's nothing much you can, you can do with that. Uh, oh, Bob suggests Mae West, again, at Paramount at the same time, was teamed later on at Universal with, with W.C. Fields and survived that. I mean, I'm I'm not the right person to to, to talk about that because I'm not actually a much of a Mae West fan, um, unfortunately. I'm sure I'm sure it's my problem rather than hers, but I I don't really take to it. But what do you think, Mae West and, and the Marxes? You know, if if there were film of Mae West and Groucho together, I mean, if we had scenes with the two of them playing off each other, I'd be very interested to see how that went. I mean, I'd love to see what that alchemy led to but i can't quite say oh that would have been great you know i mean it seems like it might be a case of too much punchline and not enough setup um but i do think it is slightly easier to think of possible alternative leading ladies for groucho than it is to think of um comedians male or female who would have fit into the marx brothers movies as we know them um you know that does seem like a somewhat more fruitful line of inquiry um 
because of some of his radio work later, we know Groucho had really good chemistry with Tallulah Bankhead. Uh, if Tallulah Bankhead mm-hmm. had made a film appearance with the brothers, she wouldn't have been like Thelma Todd or Margaret Dumont, but I could imagine her playing a part, uh, some version of a society woman or an organized crime mall, maybe, um, playing off Groucho very fruitfully as they did on the big show. Um, by the way, I can't say fruitfully any more times this episode. <laughs> if I do, I, I want somebody to step on me. Um, also, Dinah Shore. Dinah Shore and Groucho yep. um, had great chemistry on TV and radio and seemed to really enjoy each other. And she, it, it's a, that's a different kind of personality, too, that if she had been written into a Marx Brothers movie, that might have worked really nicely. People like um, Dinah Shore and Tallulah Bankhead, who were funny but weren't comedians, uh, also might have been more promising uh, team-ups with the Marx Brothers because the comic spotlight would be safely theirs, the Marxes, um, and these supporting players would be uh, useful to them in the same way that their great supporting players are useful to them. I think the issue with, with potentially problematic issue with Mae West is, isn't so much that they would they she would hog the limelight but but that her her character is too is too knowing she gets the measure of people too easily and 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 Groucho is somebody you know who thrives on on people who don't get the measure of him so so that might be the problem there i mean one does hear though from time to time i'm sure you you have that you know they're they're kind of boy comedians they 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 they're for men you know because because the women are just just the three basic archetypes and and it might have been nice, I, I think, to to. I mean, they had they had female comic roles in their school act, didn't they? Yeah, I, I suppose so. Um, it, although what we know about that act, it does seem like it's possible that the that the girls in the classroom also had comic material to do. But I don't know the surviving pictures. It certainly looks like their role was decorative. Um, and it's not hard to imagine that that's the way it went. I don't know. It it just, it does seem like the Marx Brothers, because they are this awkward, accidental comedy team, I mean, in terms of their personalities, you know, um, and, and three such distinctive comic characters. If the idea of the Marx Brothers on film together weren't so precious and there weren't so few movies and such a such an onus on any imaginary Marx Brothers project to be one of the great ones, you know, it might be interesting in some bizarro world to have Groucho as the Margaret Dumont figure and a female character like Mae West with a lot of effrontery, you know, charging into his cocktail party and and disrupting things and making him uncomfortable you know that would be interesting to see wouldn't it but it wouldn't really be a marx brothers movie i think the, you know the 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 example of zeppo is is something to hold on to here you know the the idea that that within those scenarios those first five scenarios this this extremely smart uh, attractive, normal-seeming person is nonetheless one of that one of that uh, an, part of that anarchic force. You know, he's he's accepted by them. He is one of them, particularly in monkey business. You know, he's absolutely one of that gang. Means that there there probably is more scope there than than we might think. I mean, imagine if, for instance, when they turn up at, at Rittenhouse Manor, um, rather than merely uh, amusing and charming uh, Lillian Roth, you know, she just she just 
rolls up her sleeves and joins in. You know, she just she just becomes one of them, and uh, you know gets involved in 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 the full range of. Uh, of horseplay. I mean, I think that that would have been. Uh, I don't think that would have upset any um, apple carts. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think Lillian Roth in Animal Crackers. Partly it's her performance, and partly it's in the writing. That character does seem to have a little more of an interior life than the other ingenues in the other films. It would be easy to overstate this. I'm not going to argue that Arabella Rittenhouse is uh, a, a very complex character. or One of the great feminist uh, roles. Of, uh, yes, a, a, a feminist pioneer. <laughs> Probably not quite. Uh, but I could imagine a play built around that character, and I couldn't imagine a play built around um, you know, the Mary Eaton part in Coconuts. So, so what are you doing? Go away and write it. <laughs> what are you talking to me for? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's actually that's actually not a bad idea. The the Arabella actually this this should be a book. The Arabella Rittenhouse Diary. <laughs> uh, you know, among the what might have beens in their film career, I wonder if the, both the co-star question and the director question. Um, might look different if we imagine a Marx Brothers film that doesn't have to have all the Marx Brothers in it, um, or even the main three. Um, that might have been an interesting way for them to do more work without um, without changing our sense of the 13 Marx Brothers films. W- what if Harpo and Chico had made some films together as a two-man team? Or, you know, what if they had done done some shorts? It would have been particularly interesting, I think, if... Um, in the period when Harpo and Chico were still at their best, if they had had an opportunity to see what a two-man act was like um, by the time Groucho was really done. Uh, Harpo and Chico, although they did work together and were a successful stage duo for a while and and, and did that British tour together, um, they were, I think, communicating to some extent the memory of the characters they had played as as much younger men. Um, It'd be interesting to see a Harpo-Chico duo film from the 1930s? Uh, or what if they had been available as the sidekicks in other people's films? Um, you know, even serious actors. I mean, imagine, you know, a, a Bogart or a Cagney with Harpo and Chico as his uh, his two sidemen, you know. Yeah, you have you have um, John Wayne and Oliver Hardy in the, in the fight in Kentucky. And so... Uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, there would have been more opportunities, perhaps, for any of them as individuals. Um, than in these vehicles that had to accommodate the team and could therefore really only be one thing. Well, let's let's move on to shorts then, seeing as you, seeing as you brought that up. Um, but before considering the prospect of them all um, in shorts, I, I I like this Harpo Chico idea. Let's let's stick with that. So let's say that uh, after the big store uh, in 1940, the early 1940s, uh, Groucho has has left the act. He's had enough. Chico is at a loose end. He very much wants to continue working, and uh, he gets an offer from Columbia uh, to uh, make a series of short subjects um, with Harpo, uh, a series of of twenty minute films with with a little musical spot in them as well, uh, and some simple plot. That would have been lovely, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, it would have been lovely. And I, they would probably have been roughly, in my imagination anyway, they're roughly like Laurel and Hardy films, just with Harpo and Chico's personalities. Uh, we often compare them to Laurel and Hardy this way, you know, um, 
Laurel and Hardy are earnestly trying to get the piano up the stairs. They want to do a good job. It only becomes a, a wreckage of chaos because of their incompetence. Uh, if Harpo and Chico had the same assignment, of course, you know, they would gleefully destroy the piano on purpose. But the premise would be pretty much the same, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, if you think of, you know, the, 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 a typical Three Stooges film from, from Columbia from that time, uh, th- there you get that much more chaotic feeling. It's not, you know, they're obviously not rooted in reality in the way that Laurel and Hardy are more. I, don't know, I know there are fantasy elements in Laurel and Hardy, but they, their situations are, are basically realistic. With the Three Stooges, uh, we tend to think that the, quite rightly, I think, you know, that the, obviously the comedy is cruder. Uh, than than the Marx Brothers, but it's every bit as free. So so with with stronger material and with their personalities, you could imagine them ha- taking basically kind of Three Stooges like scenarios and making something quite 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 special with them. I think so. In shorts, in, in two reels, yeah. you know. I mean, pro- probably not features. No. It's also interesting to imagine, you know, as with the Three Stooges, if there had been a bunch of Marx Brothers shorts with any Marx Brothers in them, it probably would have dramatically increased the possibility of a lot of Marx Brothers on television a couple of decades later. And it's interesting that that often didn't come, actually, isn't it? I mean, whether or not Harpo would have accepted or not accepted it or not is a different question. Although he probably would if Chico begged him enough. But but obviously we would know about it if, if that had ever been suggested. So it obviously wasn't. You know, another reason to wish they had made some shorts um, is that it might have led to the preservation of some of their earlier material that they never put in front of cameras. You know, when they did have that one time they were asked to, in effect, make a short for the house that Shadows built, they preserved the theatrical agency scene that they had done on stage. Um, and it's possible if they had been, if they had had a contractual need to come up with short subjects, uh, maybe they would have gone back to the Napoleon scene mm. and the Dubarry scene and Home Again and On the Mezzanine. Um, and we might have a, a more complete record of their early work um, as a result of having to turn out a bunch of Marx Brothers two-reelers. Yeah, I mean, I think I've said this before as well, but it's such a pity they're not in that film Paramount on Parade, um, the, the, the kind of all-star bill there. Because, yeah, the, I mean, something like the Napoleon sketch would have been absolutely perfect for that. And, and originally, what I was going to say when we got round to the idea of shorts is is that, as you know, the, the Harpo Chico idea is lovely, but uh, for, for all of them, I suspect there, there would be too much, just too much to pack in to, to, a, to a short subject to, to meaningfully accommodate them but of course i i wasn't thinking as you've just said of their back catalog where there's there's so much to raid there that is self-contained um they toured um one of the plays didn't they I, I, was it animal crackers as as a little act was it and everything or something was that yeah and everything and and they also in the 30s when after their film career had started but they were still occasionally doing these vaudeville tours where they would do just that. They would do a scene from, they would do the, what they called the Spanish Nights mm. party scene from the Coconuts, and they would do the Dubarry scene from Animal Crackers and the Napoleon scene from I'll Say She Is. That was the what is sometimes called the Schweinerei tour. Um, and yeah, they were they were already accustomed to sort of repackaging that early stuff. There's also a lot more early stuff that we don't really know very much about. We just know they did it. Um, for a while in... I think it was in On the Mezzanine. Um, there, are, there are references in some reviews to a scene 
with Harpo and Chico as auto mechanics. Don't know anything about that. Not one gag or anything about the premise other than Harpo and Chico as auto mechanics. But there are, you know, two or three reviews that suggest this was in the act at some point in the early 20s. Uh, and, you know, if they had had to come up with a bunch of shorts, maybe at some point they would have uh, had occasion to revive some of these very mysterious things from their past career. When you look at their, their the actual films that we have of them, um, you do occasionally see, well, that would make a good short. You know, you could you could you could lift out the Chevalier bits from the from the ship. You know, you start with that, that opening shot of the ship establish in. 10 seconds that they're stowaways and then cut straight to the passport scene uh you know that that would work and there are there are i think if you if you think about it there's probably more than we realize that that could be lifted out um in that castle films type way yeah i'm i'm sure that's right um and in fact even though some there are probably scenes that you feel could be lifted as shorts but maybe they'd feel a little incomplete um, but, you know, it's not as though the average comedy two-reeler of the 20s or 30s is a very complete dramatic statement. Mm. I mean, many of them are very slapdash and haphazard. And um, so, you know, if if, uh, if you could take uh, the party scene from Monkey Business or maybe the, the Punch and Judy scene from Monkey Business is a better example, uh, something that really would stand alone. Uh, you know, I don't think people would be too concerned about why he's on a ship or what's going to happen to him. And I think there's also just a, a natural tendency to to kind of underestimate how much you can pack into two reels. I mean, because 20 minutes just sounds like a very short time. You know, you, you, you say, to, to, are you coming downstairs? Yeah, I'll be down in five minutes. And what you actually mean is I'll be down in 30 seconds. But, you know, yeah. actually, when you when you sit down and watch something like... Um, um, what's that, that Laurel and Hardy one where um, they're, they're cleaning up after a party? I can't think of what it's called now. I would have known once. Um, but that feels like you've just watched a movie. That doesn't feel like you've you've been fast-forwarding through anything. An artfully written two-reel short can be as satisfying as a feature. Uh, I wonder if uh, Groucho might have um, done some more documentary-style shorts in the Robert Benchley manner. Uh, you know, more as a presenter, narrator, talking to the camera in his almost in his school teacher role. Mm. Um, I could imagine that some in, informative uh, Groucho shorts that are sort of parodies of of what we would now call a public service message. Which makes me wonder, you know, could could Benchley have written for them, and 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 why didn't he? I mean, he was a, he was yeah he was a good he was a good gag man. He was a very good polisher of screenplays wasn't he i mean if you i don't know if you've seen the um the hitchcock film foreign correspondent but he actually um no i haven't he has a small role in that in which he's absolutely superb i mean he 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 comes on as you would expect and just takes over the film for five minutes um but he, he i don't know which came first because he does also have an additional dialogue credit so i don't know if he was brought in to polish it up and gave himself a part or if he had a part and and it became obvious that he was a good man to to um to do a bit of writing as well but you can you can see his his touch you know all through it and he was obviously a you know a, an associate of theirs and a fan um yes yes it would have been very nice to have him on the credits i think yeah that is surprising that that benchley never wrote for them especially considering how many of benchley's peers did which I guess brings us neatly to other writers. Um, do you mourn other writers, or are you, 
you happy with what we've got? Well, as with most Marx Brothers questions, I'm, I'm happy with what we got. I just wouldn't mind having two or three times as much of it. Um, and if more writers meant that, then I would probably be all in favor. Uh, certainly, we know they were a, a real challenge to write for. Um, and there's only a handful of people who did it well. Um, and th- I don't know, it's tempting to say this is one of the principal reasons for the small number of Marx Brothers films and the even smaller number of really great Marx Brothers films. I think the Marx Brothers enthusiasm for working hard was was flagging by the by the time they got to Hollywood. And that's as much the answer to why they didn't make more films or why they didn't make shorts. Um, but as far as specific writers um, who, who might, might have been interesting to to have their words in the Marx Brothers mouths, uh, I don't know if I would have thought of it before, but Benchley certainly should be near the top of that list. Uh, I don't know if this means he should have written for the Marxes, but I often hear a little bit of Groucho when I read the poetry of Ogden Nash. Um, Ogden Nash had a a Serbic wit, a huge appetite for wordplay, shameless uh, uh, (laughs) appetite for wordplay. Um, and a lot of his, particularly the Ogden Nash poems that are not written in neatly metered verses, but are just sort of these free-form, long sentence poems that nevertheless do eventually arrive at, <laughs> arrive at rhymes uh, for the lines that precede them. Uh, a lot of that is written in a, 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 a wisecracking, very um, discursive way that reminds me of the great Groucho speeches in Horse Feathers and, and Duck Soup, especially in Animal Crackers. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the you know the the their early films and obviously their stage uh, later stage material they've got the writers they deserve there and 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 everything's firing on all cylinders and then when they move to MGM where there there might have been an issue you know wise heads bring back uh, Kaufman and Riskin um, in in when the scripts do start to become problematic in the later MGM films. Um, I can't really think, I mean, obviously one wishes there were better writers and one wishes that the writing was better, but I can't really think of many writers who were at work at that time in Hollywood that I wished had been given, you know, more to do or anything to do with them. Obviously Ben Hecht was around and he had some sort of involvement with them, Um Maybe he, you know, he would have been a, a better bet. Uh, Dorothy Parker, of course, was was hanging around MGM in the uh, in the, the end of the thirties, wasn't she? Uh, yeah. As as a, as a screenwriter, um, so th- so there's a possibility, perhaps. But uh, I, I certainly don't think. Oh, if only he'd written for them. If only she'd written for them. They were, you know, they were there at the same time. Uh, again, I think it's more a case of just the times being out of joint, isn't it? Rather than than anything more easily solvable than that. Yeah, and it's a little hard to know if a a particular writer, even a great comedy writer, would have been a good Marx Brothers writer if they never wrote for the Marx Brothers because it was such a specific kind of writing assignment. Um, You know, it's entirely possible that given the assignment of writing for them, you know, Great writers like uh, Ring Lardner, for example, or, or or James Thurber, any of the giants, probably if they had, you know, put themselves to the task of writing for the Marx Brothers, you probably would have been capable of doing it well. But even in the other work of the Marx Brothers great writers, we don't quite we don't quite see it. You know, Kalmar and Ruby's screenplays for other comedians, you know, aren't quite 
what they did for the Marx Brothers, um, the rest of George Kaufman's career. I mean, if you read all the Kaufman and Hart plays, you know, uh, many of them are great comedies and all of them at least have something great in them. Um, but it's not the same kind of writing that, that Kaufman and Riskin did for the Marx Brothers. Uh, it's, it's very different. It's much more reality and character based. It's far more motivated. I think the idea that Kaufman would be this great Marx Brothers writer before he wrote for them, it seemed to come more from people knowing his personality, you know, as a, as a public figure um, than the writing he had done previously. Or, or if, if it was based on his writing, probably more his essays and commentary than his plays, which are more conventional than, than, than Marx Brothers scripts are. I, I, yeah, I think the the big problem with the the screenplays, I think, of their their final films, isn't that they're necessarily that they're being written by people who have no familiarity with their work. I think they're written by people who have kind of too much familiarity with it. Um, I, I think they're they're the, they're the they're the sort of people who are very very easy to write for badly. And yeah. very, very hard to write for well. And the difference between the two is sometimes tissue thin. It can hinge on a, you know, a word or a, or a, a, a turn of phrase or, a, or, or just a, a tweak to an idea. At the circus in particular, I think, is full of, full of ideas that are almost right. Uh, full, full, of, full of scenes that are, that are almost ready to go. And they just haven't quite got that extra something and that is that that is a formula and i guess a lot of great humorists don't particularly want to write to any formula other than their own i mean there there is that that prickliness between groucher and perelman i think which is based in the idea of of ownership of the formula isn't it yeah, and also a distinctive style of writing. I mean, one of the reasons we make such a sport out of trying to spot the Perelman lines in the screenplays he worked on is because Perelman had a distinctive style. We feel like we have an ear for what he would have written. Uh, but but we know for, from the few lines that have been attributed to others, you know, there's, I can't remember exactly, but there's like, there are jokes in Horse Feathers that um, everyone assumes are Perelman's, but in some interview, Sheikman says, no, actually, that was, that was mine. Um, because if you're trying to write a great Groucho joke, it'll probably be at least possible to, to attribute it to Perelman because it, it, it's close enough. It, it's similar enough. Um, I, I I guess there's a formula for making a comedy at the time that involved coming up with a story and then having a a team, usually multiple people, just pile gags into it and and write as much comedy material on top of that story as as it could accommodate. Um, And that was your screenplay. Um, That obviously worked fine lots of the time. Um, but it seems to be there's just a subtle difference between that approach and the way the great early Marx Brothers scripts were written, um, where the, the story, I mean, they had to come up with a premise, but the premise would be like stowaways on an ocean liner or, you know, uh, is the guest of honor at a high society party. Uh, I'm sure Kaufman and Riskind and Perlman and Johnstone and all the guys who wrote the great ones also had writer's room kind of experiences where they just brainstormed and tried to pile gags into it. Um, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a different kind of comedy writing, isn't it? It's at least slightly different. And in the later films, it feels like there's a sense of, oh, well, we've got this 
pretty solid story that goes from beginning to end. We just got to get the right people in the room to pile a lot of jokes into it. And I, you can maybe you can do you can do well that way, but but not brilliantly. Hey guys, I want to hop in here for a second. I had a thought. Um, we have we have to temper our expectations, uh, wishing the Marxes to have made shorts because maybe except for Hell Roach, basically all the shorts departments at the big studios were manned by second tier directors and second tier writers. And the films were made relatively quickly, and they were just product. Uh, no time to refine or redo. So while we would dream about getting 20-minute versions of Duck Soup, more likely what we'd get is 20-minute uh, versions of uh, The Big Store. Yeah, lots of running about, I guess, and, and crashing into things. So, you know, I mean, it would, it would rely, it would very much depend on them being uh, absolutely at the top of their game and, and giving a toss. Which you know those two things were not uh, regularly seen in tandem in, in their career. Yeah, a lot of people obviously put the the blame on the later films onto onto um, MGM itself, which has a you know a, a fairly well deserved reputation as the studio where comedians went to die. Um, so a lot of people have speculated about them. Um, what would have happened if they'd gone to a different studio? Perhaps, let's say, after races or after um, room service. If they'd gone, for instance, um, to Universal, a lot of people say uh, that would have been better, citing the, the freedom that the studio had allowed Fields. Um, but then it is important to remember that Fields was the architect of his own material and the Marxes would have been, again, at the mercy of the Universal staff writers um unless unless they could have perhaps swiped nat perrin away from abdon costello um i think i think the same problem would would have would have existed which is which is the the scripts which is the writers particularly the universal but whatever you make of mgm's pool of writers it was it was big and it was deep and it was varied and the potential was there um universal was shallower waters yeah, that's that sounds right to me. That that Fields did well because he was more of a self-contained. Uh, he was more of a production uh, in his own right. Uh, it is possible that the Marx Brothers would have done good work at another studio, um, and the others' reason to think Universal or or possibly Warner Brothers would have um, would have had uh, the room to accommodate them generously. Uh, but I think whatever the studio was, it still would come down to the same. Um, the same factors that we're pretty consistently citing as the ingredients in in good Marx Brothers stuff. They would have needed a producer who understood why Marx Brothers movies are different, um, who, who appreciated their humor and knew what, what kind of soil it needed to grow in. Um, and conceivably, that could have happened uh, at any studio, maybe less less likely at a studio like MGM, which had a very strong brand um, and, a, and a house style um, that is maybe farther from the Marx Brothers house style than, than Universal or, or Warner Brothers or Fox. But if you imagine like another set of wrong values imposed on the Marx Brothers, that it's just not the MGM values, uh, it, it still probably leads farther from what we want a Marx Brothers movie to be. What about a a dedicated comedy studio like Hal Roach? 
Oh, that's interesting. Um, I mean, it's possible that that too, like there would also be a house style there that would be a somewhat awkward fit for the Marx Brothers. Um, but in a way, that one's easy to imagine because we have uh, the Edgar Kennedy stuff in Duck Soup and other stuff in Duck Soup. I mean, you could actually, um, if if I were Bob Gassell, I could make a Hal Roach short out of Duck Soup, a Marx Brothers short. Uh, a, a Hal Roach, Leo McCary directed Marx Brothers short. Um, using some of the material in Duck Soup. Yes, Duck Soup does point the way, doesn't it, to a, to a possible um, Hal Roach kind of version of them, which whatever one, one makes of Duck Soup, and, and I know that most people think it's absolutely the bee's knees. I don't so much, but, but obviously I do enjoy it a lot. Uh, and if going to Hal Roach gave us you know, a dozen more duck soups, I would be the last person to complain. And, you know, I, I would certainly much rather watch the Edgar Kennedy scene in Duck Soup than, than some of the stuff in, in, in the later MGMs. So you could, you could argue that it would be, it would be a, you know, a, a broader, brasher, slightly, slightly cruder version, but probably preferable to the, the excessively genteel version that we get in, in Go West or the Big Store or, or at the Circus. And yet, if it had happened, then our concept of what a Marx Brothers movie is would be affected by the mm. existence of those films. I mean, we're, we have this idea about what the Marx Brothers did well and how they were supposed to be used. And that idea is derived mostly from our feelings about their first six or seven movies. Uh, but if, you know, all through the 30s, they had also been making, you know, uh, other kinds of comedies, if there had been this kind of... Uh, uh, sub-series of Harpo and Chico, Hal Roach, more slapstick kind of shorts. Um, it w- that would f- seem to us like one of the one of the bows in their one of the arrows in their quiver, you know. And and I guess we would we would then be talking about the 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 early Paramount films, you know, the the, the kind of the the Broadway style Marx Brothers movies in the way that we talk about kind of Woody Allen up to Love and Death. Uh, right. with that clear demarcation point, um, you know, and some might prefer the first and some might prefer the second, but they would both, they would both be the Marx Brothers. Yeah. I, on the other hand, there is something about uh, the Marx Brothers act is so eclectic. There's so much going on. They actually, they, they did encompass a, a range of styles and approaches and kinds of comedy. That's one of the reasons their work stays so fresh and so interesting um, and, and seems to have such such depth and complexity to it. Um, I once uh, showed uh, coconuts to a, a group of people who weren't super familiar with the Marx Brothers, and as a as a way of introducing it, I talked about them a little bit. And one of the points I made um, is, if you think that this isn't your thing, um, give it a chance because it's you, you might be surprised by how unlike what you think it is, it really is. These are not comedians who throw pies in each other's faces. They don't hit each other and kick each other in the ass and poke each other in the eyes. It's it's not that. Um, And then we watch Coconuts. And, you know, actually, in the beautiful scene in the lobby when the Marx Brothers meet and they do that beautifully choreographed entrance... They do. They slap each other and, you know, Groucho falls and, and Zeppo catches him. And, you know, I was actually wrong about that. It, it, it feels different to me than um, what I would describe as more uh, than what I would describe as more abusive <laughs> physical comedians. 
but they actually do they do practice in, in some of that stuff too. It, it was part of their act. Uh, they they you know contain multitudes of comedians. Yeah, and that and that's that's it, isn't it? That's that's the thing. That's the key. That's what makes them different. Is is they 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 can go from extraordinary subtlety and sophistication to extraordinary uh, vulgarity and broadness uh, and then back again and then back again and then back again and it, and somehow it doesn't feel like a clumsy fit that's that's the elusive part isn't it that's the magic yeah I, an interesting exercise uh, along with these uh, these exercises that we're discussing is you know what if those harpo chico shorts had existed what if that's what you saw that christmas when you first saw the marx brothers on television if if what you saw that night was a series of movies featuring only harpo and chico in more laurel and hardy type uh, premises would they have grabbed you would you have become a marx brothers fan yes i i I think so I think I think so, but then you know I I was and am a fan of, of of other comedians. I wonder if they would have they would have just maintained that that extra degree uh, that you know that they have for me. Um, perhaps in part because there is uh, you know the, the, what they do is so so uh, thin on the ground quantity wise. Um, I don't know. I would give that a shot, but I th- I think my, so. My answer to my question: what 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 do I wish? there was that was that was different uh more please more please yeah i'm I'm with you on that um and if you ask me to be more specific about anything we've discussed i think the thing i would most long for would be uh, a series of five or ten two reelers um preserving earlier stage material yes theirs. that would be those would be both wonderfully entertaining it would be by definition at their prime doing some of their prime material um and it would make uh it would make our job as people who are interested in marx brothers history much easier because we'd have a record of of some of that precious stuff yep i would i would sign my name to that as well so before our final song noah have you got anything to tell our subscribers our patreon subscribers uh, I have what I always have to say to our subscribers, which is thank you. Thank you for joining us on Patreon. Anyone curious about this can go to our website, marksbrotherscouncilpodcast.com, and click the big Patreon button. Or if that's too convenient for you, you could also go to patreon.com slash Podcast and read about our membership levels and join us. Uh, the benefits are rolling out. In fact, I've gotten some notifications that some of our subscribers at the left-handed moths and fireflies cabinet levels have already received or are soon to receive their beautiful Bogards After the Hunt posters. Uh, so those are on the way. And anyone who's been following the saga of the postcards knows that the monthly postcard has been uh, rolling out. It seems that with each postcard, we get a little closer to the ideal of every one of them reaching its destination reasonably intact and unscarred by sorting machines. I want to say thank you to our listener, Megan the Cartoonist, who designed the March postcard, postcard number three, uh, and extend once again the invitation to anyone listening who might want to work on a postcard. If you're a visual artist, you know where to find me, and let's talk. I can also tell you that uh, the fourth postcard, the April card, uh, which is one of my designs, is a one that I think you'll particularly enjoy if you are uh, on the off chance that you're a Marx Brothers fan. 
so look forward to that one in the mail too. Um, the postcards are available to our subscribers at the students of Huxley, left-handed moths, and fireflies cabinet levels. So thanks to all, all of our subscribers, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll be happy to keep sending these out. I look forward to the day there are hundreds and hundreds of postcards. Okay, so now it's time for our final song. And this month I want to do something a bit different and bring in a special guest. Uh, Noah, this is Dan O'Farrell. Hello, Dan O'Farrell. Hello, Noah. Hi, Le Matthew. Dan is a singer-songwriter, and he was the frontman with the band Accrington Stanley, formed in the late 1980s, and described in 2013 as one of the world's longest-running and least successful indie groups. <laughs> uh, but British <laughs> listeners, at true. least, will know that uh, the name John Peel is not one to dismiss lightly, and John Peel uh, was a fan, was he not, Dan? Yeah, he um he played us a few times, and um we had this kind of I don't know it's for, fortuitous I guess occasion where after John Peel sadly died, they went for his record collection, and um started to put them online a few years after his death, and it just so happened that the they started in the A box, and the first hundred re- first hundred <laughs> records they put up uh, were bands with the A, and we had two of our LPs that I'd sent to him, so. You know, most of the bands in this first 50 or whatever were, were oh, we've heard of them. And they're going, who are they? <laughs> who are this Accrington Stanley? <laughs> so we, uh, we suddenly got a little bit of notoriety. And actually, you know, I even went on the local news station uh, with Baz, the keyboard player from the band, to kind of uh, talk about this brush with fame. <laughs> well done. Um, I'm going to just delay the, the main reason why I've asked you on. Obviously, you're a Marx fan, because otherwise we wouldn't let you in. And I'm guessing you're roughly the same age as me. So I'm especially keen to hear how you first encountered them and what they've meant to you over the years. Yeah, well, it's interesting, Matthew, because I think you'll probably... When I first heard your origin story, I, I had that shock of like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's pretty much mine. I think it was the same Christmas. Uh-huh. So I have a distinct, vivid memory of um, opening that Radio Times in our family and still the case now we only buy the radio times once a year for christmas uh, which is the big tv guide in in england and um my dad had always told me oh you're like the marx brothers you should, you should. but you know it wasn't accessible it wasn't something that ever, you know, i'd remember ever being on tv before and then opened this radio times and it was like every day for like a week was a marx brothers film i don't remember seeing animal crackers but i think i must have caught you know most of monkey business i think first of all and then yeah just the next I remember. I think they were on quite late at night. I remember the next four nights, you know, staying up and watching, and and becoming at that point absolutely obsessed, like uh, ridiculously so. <laughs> In my teenage years, that became a bit of a kind of a, I don't know, like a badge of kind of like this is what I'd found kind of thing. And I, I remember diligently covering all my A level English literature and history uh, folders with with pages photocopied out of wire duck. And <laughs> so, did you know any other fans at that point, or were you? just howling in the wilderness well my friends humored me i I made them all sit through all the films you know as as i gradually got them on vhs although bizarrely i think i only had monkey business and room service on vhs for a long time which uh you know was was a a strange selection i don't think anyone was quite as obsessed as i was so i i I 
frequently found myself seeing people's eyes, <laughs> the interest in people's eyes kind of <laughs> gradually yeah, fade. That, as I... that, that glazing effect, I think, I think we've all seen that. You know, and then you've got to read Harpo Speaks. And like, okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, that, one of the reasons I've really enjoyed discovering this podcast, you know, and, and, and the council in, on Facebook is actually, oh, okay, I'm not alone. <laughs> if only I knew you guys when I was 17. You must have, at the same time you were discovering the Marx Brothers, you must have also been developing as a musician and i wonder if the music in the marx brothers films made its way into your consciousness that way did you did you play the songs from the films and did it have any part in your musical upbringing oh that's interesting um i didn't play the songs from the films because uh they all seemed a bit too jazzy for my rudimentary guitar skills <laughs> although interesting i was watching horse feathers again the other day and i was thinking actually i i could possibly you know learn the groucho part from that but i think maybe the the sense of kind of that lost vaudeville time was a big influence and one of the first songs I wrote that people thought was any good was about James Stewart in fact it was called James Stewart so that kind of um 1930s 1940s Hollywood world was a was something that I really engaged with and it seemed to you know speak to me more than back to the future I don't know (laughs) which is still a great film but you know I, I was left a bit cold by the the stuff that was there in the cinemas in the in the 80s that I had access to whereas actually you know these these black and white masterpieces seem I don't know sort of somehow more precious and I kind of uh, I certainly kind of locked into that in some of my songwriting okay so tell us why you're here uh what foolish thing did you do when you were in a band <laughs> so foolishly I emailed uh, in uh, a song that I wrote when I was I think I wrote it when I was 20 um roundabout there uh, for Accrington Stanley called Zeppo Speaks and uh, I was thinking about this like how I came to write it uh, there's a couple of stories about that uh, one is that I was very um, full of myself <laughs> at this point uh, thinking, right this is it I was at university studying English had my little you know covered folders of Mark's Rubber's pictures and uh, I was going to set myself major challenges as a songwriter and one of the things I did uh, around about this time was right I'm going to write a song for every letter of the alphabet A through to Z <laughs> and uh, uh, I called it the alphabet tapes and I was really you know really worked hard on this thing and, and 26 songs uh, I was scraping the barrel a bit you know there's, I think X is xylophones for Xanthi or something but um, 26 songs and I the way it used to work for me in the band was I'd, I'd sort of write, I was the main songwriter, I'd sort of play these songs to the rest of the band and they would tell me which ones they thought were good. Um, and it was somewhat dispiriting. So I said, here's 26 songs for every level of the alphabet. And they said, oh, Zed's good, <laughs> which was, of course, Zeppo Speaks. Um, so it had this song and uh, yeah, it's 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 taken, I guess it took, it's, it's taken from the point of view of um, a Zeppo Marx kind of feeling and with a somewhat, you know, now I've learned more about Zeppo, I realise I maybe didn't get the full story into the song. But, um, you know, in my head, it was that idea of him being on the fringes and uh, at a certain point saying, I've had enough of this, <laughs> get me out of here, um, which appealed to the slightly Morrissey-esque melancholia that I was kind of dealing in at the time. And, um, you know, the idea of uh, everyone else is getting all the spotlight and everyone else is having all the fun. And here am I on the corner of the, the screen and the fringes of the crowd kind of... Uh, you know, feeling sorry for myself. And that that seemed like a kind of a something I could use and something I could tap into and empathise with. So it's kind of a, it, I guess it's, you know, a song from my point of view, but I'm using Zeppo as the kind of the uh, the carrier pigeon for those emotions. So you, you recorded it with the band? Yeah, and uh, we had a manager at the time who, um, you know, was very good for us. Um, 
and he really liked the song. He said, oh, this is the best thing you've ever written. This is the best thing you've ever written, Dan. Um, and we recorded a demo version of it, and he said, right, I'm going to take this to the record labels. You know, we were in that position, lots of bands at the time. You're trying to get signed. You're trying to get some kind of deal. Um, so we, we worked up a version of the song, and it sounded pretty good. Um, and then he had a, I think he had a meeting. I can't remember the record label, possibly virgin possibly rca you know it was, it was someone quite big and we we're all quite excited about this this is this was going to be it um and i just remember him coming back from this meeting and sort of phoning me and saying well <laughs> he liked the song uh he thought it was a strong song dan but then he said how the fuck am i supposed to sell 1930s marx brothers to 1989 teenagers <laughs> <laughs> Um, and therein ended the ended the dream pretty much um so uh yeah and i suppose you know when i look back and think of the songs that were hits you know in in the years after that you know and it wasn't long before Britpop and all that stuff and no one else was getting big on singing songs about zeppo marx so i guess you know i'd like to say he was like the guy who didn't sign the beatles but sadly no <laughs> <laughs> so ca- can we ask you to perform the song exclusively for us my pleasure Dan O'Farrell, Zeppo Speaks. At the edge of the screen, there I am, that's me. I'm barely in this scene. The others get the funny lines, the running gags, the slapstick triumphs. I'm waiting in the wings. There you sit and flirt and laugh. Surrounded by all these bright sparks. I'm on the fringes of the cast, the one you always talk to last. I feel like Zeppo Marx I'm gonna hand my notice in Pick a game that I can win Take center stage again This love interest is bored If you're long for devotors Spinning the wings There you sit and flirt and laugh Surrounded by all these bright sparks I'm on the fringes of the cast The one you always talk to last I feel like Zeppo Marks like Zeppo Start the show without me You know where I'll be Start the show without me Start the show without me You know where I'll be Start the show without me Roll the film without me God knows where I'll be Just roll the film without me 
found without me God knows where I'll be Just roll the film without me Stop the show without me I don't care where I'll be To stop the show without me When the nightingale. Well, I was 16 in 1989, and I would have bought that. Oh, thank you. That'll be one sale. (laughs) This could be a song cycle, you know, a whole Zeppo uh, oratoria. A concept album. (laughs) And we will be posting uh, some video of that performance on our YouTube channel, and the link will be on the blog. So do please uh, look out for that. And thank you so much for joining us, Dan. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Excellent. Thank you. (laughs) Well, that wraps up episode 55 of the Marx Brothers Council podcast. We'll see you next month. Take it, Heidi. The Marx Brothers Council podcast is produced by Bob Cassell. Matthew Cunningham's the annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarksBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marks and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marks Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time!